0: This is Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. And we've learned that book lovers are super cool and interesting, of course, because we don't really need to say that, do we? Of course, book lovers are super cool and interesting.
1: And, and we're maybe a little bit biased.
0: We're maybe a little bit biased. And I'm Amy.
1: And I'm Carrie. And our other tagline is that this is a hellscape of bad banjo playing and needy pets. And if you listened to our episode last week, you'll understand the bad banjo playing reference. And and probably if you've listened to us for almost (laughs) two years, you have heard our pets, our needy, (laughs) annoying pets on some of our episodes. So...
0: And anyway. last week, our hellscape was about something else. I can't remember what it was. What yeah, was our hellscape yeah. about?
1: Like a uh, book competition, because that is, we yeah. have a bit of a book competition. And then I think it was like generalized anxiety, because that's that's a, that's a problem. Well, that's a problem for both of us. Maybe so- each week we should change. So I have to ask you how your book flakiness is going. You've been having (laughs) issues.
0: I think I definitely am a book flake. I will say that I think that this show might have made me a worse book flake. And that is because now I know about all these different reading groups and things and I have a hard time saying no. So I am trying to read the book for upcoming guests that we have coming on. I am trying to read the book for the Louisville Zoo's conservation and conversation club because I really like that one and the book that they're reading for this coming week is about an elephant. After dogs, elephants I think are probably my favorite animal. Carrie and I also sometimes go to the the reading club that's part of our local art museum, the Speed Art Museum, and theirs is coming up next Saturday and we have our book club book on thursday so i just started the book club book my copy of the elephant book has not come in yet and i just don't even think i'm going to be able to get to the speed art museum one it's it's a little sad i've i've overcommitted myself and i realize yeah. it you'll
1: be like oh, i started this other book. And I'm like, what the I mean, like I know about the speed and I know about our book club and I know about the zoo. And then you'll be like, oh, I'm reading this book that's about, oh, I don't know, essays by, you know, circus clowns or something. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with your other
0: commitments. Well, first of all, I will never read a book about a circus clown because I cannot stand clowns. But what happens is that I put myself on a hold list sometimes for eBooks through the library and they come in. And so then I think, oh, well, maybe I can fit this one in real fast before I read that other one. Because the other thing is that I like to read the books right before I'm going to discuss it with a group because otherwise I will forget details. So reading the book club book right now, right before we're going to meet on Thursday is pretty good timing, except for that all these other groups are meeting that week too. And I haven't been able to do a lot of reading this weekend because my parents came to visit. So we are all fully vaccinated now. All the people in my family, my parents, and they came for their first visit. We haven't seen them in a year and a half. And so that was really nice to see my folks. Uh, But it meant that I didn't get a lot of reading done. So I'm really going to have to cram. (laughs) cram
1: even more than usual.
0: I'm going to have to cram more than usual in that. But what was funny is during the pandemic, my mother's library closed, much like you know many libraries around the country. Like Ours was doing curbside pickup after, I don't know, maybe May they started doing mm-hmm. curbside pickup and hers wasn't even doing that. And my mom's a huge reader like me and she had read all the books in her house. She didn't have anything else to read and she tried eBooks and really Just doesn't care for it. So I started sending her boxes of books to read, you know, a box every couple months. Well, she brought all those boxes back to me. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: So I have like four (laughs) or five boxes of books that she has returned to me that I need to go through and decide, you know, am I keeping this one or is this one that I'm just going to donate to a good cause? Maybe to the Rosewater used bookstore in South Louisville. That's sort of a nonprofit bookstore. I might have a bunch of books for you to take down because didn't you sign up to be a volunteer?
1: I did, I did, along with my daughter. She can't work by herself uh, until she's 18, but she is totally excited. We went down for training. I mean, basically it's like all the fun of working in a bookstore without that overarching like job feeling because you're Mm. volunteering, right? So you kind of volunteer when you're able to. So she's pretty excited and I feel like this will benefit the Rosewater in two ways at least. One is that we'll be volunteering and so coming down and helping ring people up or help people find books, but probably every time we go, my daughter will, and really, who am I kidding? I will find a book that I want and then I'll end up supporting it financially as well by buying a book or
0: 12. And maybe donating some, right? Will you be donating some books, Um, like, after you read them?
1: Probably, but our neighborhood now has a new little library. Um, Yeah, one of our neighbors built one and stuck it in our neighborhood, like, six houses down from us. So I'm sort of lazy, and I'm like, well, I can just walk these down here. It's closer. And really the truth is I don't buy a whole lot of books. I mean, I, mean, I know it seems like I do, but I really don't. I, I get a lot of my books from the library. And I i was just thinking the other day that I still have books from last year when we went to the Locust Grove Book sale. I still have books from that I haven't read, so I, I have sort of told myself that this summer and and maybe for the rest of the year I need to really like buckle down and get through some of the books that I have sitting on my shelves. You know, I, I say that now when I am not
0: in a bookstore. Well, I probably have about four boxes of books now to, to, to donate to the Rosewater Bookstore. I have a lot of books to get.
1: Rid yeah. Of. Book problems.
0: Book, Book problems. problems.
1: Yeah. Although I yeah I say that, you know, I say I don't need any books, but I might be willing to go through your books and see what you have. <laughs> if you're looking to offload any of them. Well, sure. Why not? You, you get first dibs, Carrie. I can, I can add it to my, I have a, a pink metal tub in my dining room and they are just Amy books.
0: Oh really? I have my own tub. That's you have your cool. own tub.
1: You have your own tub. That's yes, pretty cool. Yeah. So you know, if if I see some of yours, I can add it to the Amy tub. Which really, I mean, I really can't make fun of you because I got. I was, of I was now. gonna say, why,
0: why are you yeah. saying that I'm a flaky book reader? Because, well, you're not quite as flaky as me, but you're a little bit flaky. I'm a little bit flaky.
1: Yeah. But now, now the the thing is, usually I go, no, that's the difference. I, I'm flaky about books. But I don't think I overcommit the way you do.
0: No, I, I, well, I'm a serial overcommitter about yeah all kinds of things because yeah. I don't think I've told you this, but I think I'm going to an orientation to work at the Rosewater too.
1: <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked.
0: <laughs> so I'm excited because every season... One of my favorite episodes is when we get to chat with a book lover who grew up in a country that is not the United States. So we've had guests from Somalia, from Ireland, and from Germany, but today we have Maram Taiba, Mm -hmm. a fantasy writer and screenwriter, and we were anxious to talk to her about two things really. So she is a book lover who grew up in Saudi Arabia, and she now resides in Ontario, Canada.
1: And she has published two books, the most recent being Weather Nose, And it is a steampunk fantasy for both young readers and adults who will enjoy it as well. All right. Well, Maram, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi.
0: So I'm very excited because we've had one international guest three or four weeks ago, and now we have another international guest. That's very exciting to me because Carrie and I are always very interested in what anybody is reading. But it's especially interesting when you talk to somebody who maybe didn't grow up in the same type of environment that we did. So you were born in Canada, but you were raised in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So we'd love to know a little bit about what books by writers from that region that you enjoyed as a, as a child? What kind of things did, did you read?
2: Well, my mother introduced me to reading when we were actually in Los Angeles, and she took me to the bookstore and she bought me Sweet Valley Kids by Francine Pascal, or Pascal, and she bought me a bunch of classics like Oliver Twist, Around the World in 80 Days, and they were abridged and illustrated, and I felt like such a big girl being able to read those books. And um, that was when I fell in love with reading. And I didn't really get into Arabic books when I was little because of the literary industry. Well, globally, I would say, has matured a lot in comparison with what was available to me as a child when I was just starting to read. So I read English books like 90% of the time. Hmm. And my English reading got more and more complex. And that was how I started to write. Much to my mother's (laughs) disappointment, (laughs) I have not gotten into expanding my Arabic literary language. The reason I didn't read Arabic books was because the content was, in my opinion, as a child who was comparing, was depraved in the sense that there weren't many genres and there weren't many books that were, you know, carefully geared towards different age groups. It all seemed a little haphazard to me, and I felt like the storytelling wasn't as strong. I will say that the region is kind of waking up to that right now, and there are many writers coming up and learning the craft of storytelling, especially when it comes to cinema. Um, We have an industry that is starting to boom in Saudi Arabia, cinema, I mean, and many writers are learning the craft right now. As a child, that wasn't available to me.
0: Did you attend school in Saudi Arabia? Yeah,
2: Yeah, um, I went to an elementary school, middle school, high school, that had a really strong English program. So we studied both in Arabic and English. And, you know, I learned just the basics of the English language, not just the basics, but I would say that our creative writing program was also really good and very encouraging. I had a wonderful English teacher in sixth grade, and she, I think, was the reason that I actually decided, like I had an epiphany when I was in sixth grade, that I wanted to be an author. And it was because of her. And just the program itself was really strong when it came to vocabulary, when it came to literary language so I'm, I'm really happy about that yeah.
1: so were you exposed to like Middle Eastern legends and stuff like that was that in, in, in any way a part of stories that you heard or, or grew up with at all yeah
2: I mean there were definitely like the the thousand and one nights that's that was definitely part of what I was exposed to my grandmother my grandmother is a beautiful storyteller and she passed on some exquisite epic fairy tales that have female princesses that really went out and kicked ass. Um, <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, you know, sort of more passive fairy tales that, that are more Eurocentric. The fairy tales that my grandmother used to tell us where it was, you know, the the princess would go out and have her adventure and she would get on the horse and she would, you know, carry a sword and she would, she would get her prince on her own. And yeah, there was definitely, there were definitely a lot of legends that come from our culture. I would say they were passed down, in my case, more orally than, because I didn't read any of that stuff in books.
0: So what kind of books were you required to read in school or were taught in your literature classes or your writing classes?
2: Yeah, I remember when I was a child, my parents telling me stories about how when they were in school, they were required to read around the world in 80 days and, Mm. you know, those classical literary pieces. But I don't recall at any point in my schooling where I was asked to read a book and then discuss it. That just wasn't part of the curriculum. Hmm. So in Arabic literature, for example, they, the focus was very much on poetry because poetry is very revered in Arabian literature and in, in you know the Arabic culture. Arabic poetry is immensely powerful. It's really beautiful if you actually sit down and understand it and learn it. And it, it was very much part of Arabian history, much more so than like novels or any other form of storytelling. So the focus in our literary schooling was on poetry. Now, I didn't really care much about poetry myself, so I didn't really delve into it. In our English schooling as well, we weren't asked to read any specific works, but we did read like sections of things mm. in the class.
1: Yeah. I remember doing that too. I can't remember anything that I read in school. I can remember things that I chose on my own when I was a kid, but in school it was like there was a textbook and you'd read a little excerpt of something from a book, but I'm the same. I don't remember reading just a whole novel and discussing it. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: Which is unfortunate. I would have loved to discuss the novels that I was already reading in class. Like that would have been one way to keep my attention. (laughs) Mm,
1: Yeah. Well, your book Weather Knows is a steampunk children's fantasy. So you had mentioned that your first book series that you were introduced to was Sweet Valley Kids. So did you also have an interest in fantasy when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Harry Potter, Narnia, you name it. Uh, I remember my
2: father buying me the first three Narnia books, not really knowing what they were. And I read them and I fell in love with them. And then I found out they were a thing. And I read the rest of the series. Yeah, I wasn't exposed to steampunk though. Growing up, I was exposed to sort of steampunk imagery, maybe suggestions of that in the media that I was consuming. But I didn't know that it was a genre. Like I didn't know this, this was a thing and it had a name. I just kind of liked, the aesthetic of it. I love the philosophy behind it. And I, I just called it that thing that looks Victorian, but also modern.
0: Mm. Well, I was going to ask you if you could give our listeners who may not be super familiar with what steampunk is, what that term means to you.
2: Yeah. So steampunk, the way I understand it is, is a sort of a celebration of the age of steam When steam was used as a source of fuel, as a source of, you know, moving machines, and then everything that era kind of was all about, but then it also creates a fusion between that and modern machinery. You know, when you bring two opposites together or two things that are contrasting together, they create this sort of third that is very appealing and compelling. The images of for example, like women wearing the, the the Victorian corset and the ball gown, but like they're they're holding like this super intricate looking machine gun or something.
0: <laughs> right. I think of gears and yeah, you know metal pieces
2: right. Yeah work is is uh, gears, like you said. it's a famous
1: motif of steampunk. So I'm wondering, could you give our listeners a, a brief summary of Weather
2: Yeah, sure. So Weather News takes place in a universe called the Cerulean Universe. So the inhabitants of this world live in a lush archipelago that is somewhat tropical, maybe even a little bit Mediterranean. And these people's culture runs on machinery and on innovation and and invention. And it's, it's, it's a very playful kind of quirky little world that I made up. And the story is about a cranky old weatherman, middle-aged weatherman, who wakes up one morning and finds that his career is being sabotaged because a 10-year-old girl has invented a machine that can predict the weather. And so he goes off on this angry vendetta against her, trying to destroy her and the machine. But they kind of engage in this power play, and he finds out that she's way smarter than him, and they both learn about each other. The story that I wrote when I was in college and I was just having fun with it one summer, I really enjoyed the process of writing it. And at the moment, having actually put the book together in 2019 and published it online, I am now working on a sequel to this story in bits and pieces. So if you're following me on Instagram, which is, you know, my account is maram.taiba.author, you will find that every week I share snippets of the sequel using fantasy imagery. And that is kind of my process right now of understanding what the sequel is about or letting it come to me in short bursts so that I can have kind of a comprehensive vision of what the story is about before I actually sit down and write it. And you, as a reader, get to follow me along in this process.
0: That's really cool. I, I really loved the book. And I especially loved the relationship between Tart, the weatherman, and the younger girl, especially as the story goes along. And so I'm wondering, what was the spark of the idea f- for this story that started you out?
2: Yeah, I, it was the summer of 2006. I was bored and I started to see Tart Morning, the lead character who lives alone on an island all of, of his own and a pet crow. And I just started to follow this guy around. And, you know, I figured out he's a weatherman. That was compelling for me. I, I gave him a problem. You know, he wakes up one morning and finds that the pipe through which he sends his forecasts to the weather department is blocked. And then he goes to get that problem fixed, and then he discovers that he's being replaced by this little girl. And the little girl, Cypress Corkle doesn't really show up for me in the process until a little bit later. And then the idea kind of arrived in this explosive manner in my mind, and I was like, oh my god, it's a little girl, it's a 10-year-old girl, this is so great. And I just really enjoyed, again, this contrast between a 42-year-old man who's cranky and an introvert and this little girl who thinks very highly of herself. She's a she's a prodigy and the entire town is relying on her to take control of the weather department. And I just thought that was a really fun and funny idea. And I just really loved putting these two together in a room and having them have a little argument. And I, I think it was the moment when Cyprus arrived for me as a writer that I realized I was onto something.
1: So, when I was reading the book, it reminded me, and I don't know if you've read this, but Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. I won't force students to read uh, Moby Dick because I think that's just torture, but I did discover it's a really short novella by Herman Melville, and it's about the drudgery of work. Mm. And when I was reading about Tart and his situation, I could see a a connection with that. So, you know, the book is for kids. I mean, it's definitely, you know, a kid's book, but it's really, I think, relatable for an adult. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, did you go into it thinking that you were going to make it a book that anybody could read? Or were you aiming more for kids and it just happened to be something that, you know, adults could really find themselves in as well? I
2: wasn't thinking of age group or genre when I was writing. I was just writing because I loved this world and it made me laugh and it was playful and I loved the imagery, the colors, and I was just enjoying myself. It wasn't until that I actually decided to publish it that I had to think about where to place this book. And it was really hard for me to make that decision. And I think I am still a little bit confused about how to place it because you have mm-hmm. a 42 year old who is the lead character and then you have the nemesis, who is a 10-year-old. Um, so where do you put this book? I do think right. that both children and adults would enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. It would definitely be middle grade or up, I would say. Yeah. Uh, mainly not because of situations, but just because of the, the rich language that you use. But certainly as an adult, I enjoyed the fantasy element of it. What is it that you enjoy about writing in the fantasy genre?
2: possibility the creation there's something so thrilling about being able to create an entire world just just by thinking it Mm -hmm. and putting it into words i very often go around and i steal bits of things that i see in in my reality in my world and I'll just look at it. Like, let's say it's a tree or, or a little island. I'll look at it and it will transport me somewhere else. I can see it. I can see it. This is a world that I can write about. And then I'll go about creating the rest of it. It'll just, it'll just come.
0: Now, you said you were working on the sequel. Will it still have Tart and yeah. Cypress in yep. it? Yep. That's awesome.
2: It'll have Tart and Cypress in it together in the story. The same way that you leave them. <laughs> At the end of the book, the sequel includes a really fun adventure.
1: So one of the other things that I really liked about Weather Knows was I I found a lot of great themes in the novel, which sometimes not every book has those. You know, sometimes it can be a little bit harder to find some great lessons that that kids can learn. But there were two that I found to be really appealing in your book. And one was that kids just need to be kids, even if they're really super bright. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes we want to make them into little adults if they're really smart. And the other thing is that, being intellectually gifted may seem to an adult like a really great thing for a kid, but it often causes problems of its own. And so a lot of times kids who are gifted sort of develop asynchronously, like they may be really smart cognitively, but then their ability to have friendships isn't as strong or, you know, they're not as, as able to read social cues, right? So there's sometimes a little disconnect. So I'm curious, I mean, were you thinking about that at all? Or did you have any personal experience seeing that in someone when you were thinking about the character that Cyprus was going to become?
2: Well, I come from a family of really smart bookish girls. So maybe there was an element of that, but I did intuitively have a sense that this would be a problem for Cyprus, but I didn't know how to put my finger on it. So I I asked as experts who work with gifted children, what would be a sort of root problem for them? And and I, I, I think what really attracted me and felt like it was right for this character was that she would want to secretly be treated like a child. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the bane of Cyprus's existence is how her father doesn't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. Her big, bumbling naive sort of simple-minded father doesn't know what to do with her Um, so you have in in weather knows he treats her like the genius that she is and forgets to tell her bedtime stories and then in the second book i'm going to give you a little bit of a reveal it's like he's learned his lesson but now he goes to the other extreme of smothering her and trying to Mm. over nurture so i guess that was a fun piece for me to play with i don't know if i see parts of myself in her Maybe I do subconsciously, but I think that she was such a lovely, complex character to work with.
0: Weathernose is actually your second book. You had a novella that was published titled The Road to Elephants. So tell us a little bit about that. And I know you said that Weathernose you wrote in college. So did you actually write The Road to Elephants later and it was published first? Or yeah. what's the timeline?
2: Yeah, I wrote Weathernose in 2006 in the hope that someday I'll rewrite it and publish it. But that never happened until like to around 2019. I wrote The Road to Elephants when I was doing my master's degree in a film in Boston. And um, it was a three-month project, and I decided to publish it on Amazon. It's not a children's story. I'll, I'll start by saying that. It is not for children, so parents who are listening do not give this book to your child. But it does feature two children. So again, with the where do I place the book um, dilemma, the lead characters are a little girl and her little brother and they're running away from home. It's said in the 1920s in Saudi Arabia, they're running away from home from their abusive nanny because they hear that the circus has come to town and they want to join the circus. But what ends up happening is they're out on the road and they've never been outside into the world before. And the road brings unexpected things on a journey that takes a slightly darker twist. Hmm. Or not slightly, a darker <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I'm wondering how you think that your childhood in Saudi Arabia, which many people would view Saudi Arabia as being a much more closed society, how that influenced the types of books that you were drawn to, or maybe even the subject matter that you write about.
2: I don't think that the culture that I grew up in necessarily influenced the type of English books that I read, because it was neutral ground to me. It didn't really represent the world that I lived in, so I just I read whatever I could get my hands on because it was fun. Um, how did it influence my writing? It took me a long time to actually root myself back into my culture and bring it into my writing. I found it a lot easier growing up and, and honing my craft to just invent a new world and work with, with it there with its own rules. It wasn't until very recently that I started to see a lot of potential in the kind of culture, the kind of environment that I grew up in and to bring it with its fantasy, with its enchantment and its darkness and its conflict into my writing. And actually, I'm working on a manuscript right now. This, I I hope to be my debut novel. And it's set in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in the 1990s. It's rooted in our culture, but it it includes elements of fantasy, of spirituality, and it it does bring in a lot of um, the kind of environment that existed in the country back in the 90s, which was, it was a lot more conservative than it is now.
1: So you mentioned you now live in Canada, you lived in Saudi Arabia, you mentioned Boston, that you went to school in Boston, did I hear that right? Yeah, I did my master's in film. It sounds like you've traveled pretty extensively. Do you feel like that has influenced you as a writer at all?
2: Oh, absolutely. The more that you see, the more material that you have to work with. I was lucky to be able to travel a lot with my family. And I always looked at travel as just a means of material. It was just material that I could borrow from. And I was always walking around with with a journal. If not a journal, then you know, those little notepads and and hotel rooms, Mm -hmm. Um, just jotting down notes and looking around and and looking for ideas and putting them into words so that I could use them later. I sometimes even took pictures and created like mood boards. Um, I didn't use many of those notes, but just the process of constantly generating and being in a state of wonder, I guess,
1: Well, and, and observation too. I mean, you know, I, I think people forget part, like they think writing is the the act of writing, but like there's this whole process that comes before the writing, which is paying attention to stuff.
2: Right. So it's not like, I would even go so far as to call it a lifestyle because process suggests that you're just doing it for a short period of time. But Mm. as a writer, you have to, you have to go around in the world being a writer, you know, and that Mm -hmm. that that includes constantly taking notes and observing, like you said, and and, and looking for little treasures here and there that you could use and weave into something else.
1: You're also a screenwriter and and you've made a couple films. So even when you're not writing novels or novellas or short stories, you're you're storytelling in some capacity. So I'm curious how is telling a story as a screenwriter, different from telling a story as a novel or a novella?
2: Well, it's much faster, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Because when you're writing a screenplay, it's roughly a minute a page. So whatever you write on the page when it's filmed, it, it roughly amounts to one minute. So you have to be considerate of your pacing, and you have to be very succinct when you're writing. There's not a lot of room for going on and on about what the character's thinking, or actually you don't do that. You have to be able to to represent that visually, using visual language, because that is how you're communicating with a viewer. And you have to keep it short, keep it snappy. It's a practice in conveying an idea in as little words as possible. Whereas with prose, you have a lot of room to swirl an idea around, let it percolate, Uh, you can can go into a character's dreams, a character's thoughts and feelings and sensations, you can go off and philosophize about something, you can't really do that in a screenplay. Mm.
0: Is it hard for you to sort of go back and forth? Because I would think that, I don't know about using a different part of your brain, but they are totally different types of skills, right. I would think. And is it hard to move back and forth between those two?
2: It's only hard in the sense that you're just shifting your focus. But really, no, I don't find it to be that difficult. It's just that I have seasons for fiction, and seasons for screenwriting. That there would be a time usually when I'm really just writing screenplays and I put my screenwriter hat on and, and I'm writing rapidly and quickly and I could finish a whole episode if I'm writing a TV show in a couple weeks, a first draft at least. So when I'm done with a screenwriting project, I'll have a, a kind of a pause or a stretch of time between projects and then I'll just kind of put on my fiction writer hat and really allow myself to uh, sit with something and sit with the words. And also, I'll, I'll just be honest about, you know, people think that writers are always writing. Or they're like, they're writing every day. There are writers who do that. Obviously, I don't. For me, it's a matter of readiness. So when I feel ready for a fiction project, I'll just do that. I won't touch anything else because it is so consuming and so immersive you are actually living in a character's body for months and months and months and the, and that character's world is actually expanding around you but with screenplays you can you can kind of be more nonchalant about it and just kind of pound it out yeah they are two very different processes and i think for me it's it's for each a season so it's not about the switch for me it's just about the timing
1: well, I had never actually thought about that as far as screenwriting, but the setting is there, the screen or being filmed, and the actor conveys the emotions. So I, it just had never occurred to me that that would take away so much of, to a certain extent, the responsibility of the writer. A large part of that falls on the part of the actor and the director, As opposed to the writer. yeah, I don't think I'd ever made that connection in my head before. Right.
2: And as a screenwriter, you're actually not allowed to direct. You're supposed to leave the the actor some room for interpretation for their own version of the character. So not to describe the character too minutely, their gestures, their movement, and kind of leave room for the director and the actor to work together and play with it.
1: All right. Well, Maram... (laughs) It has been so interesting learning about you and about weather Nose and your process. And I cannot wait to pick up the road to elephants. So Yay. this has been fun.
2: <laughs> I would love to know what you think of that one too.
1: Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
0: We are back with Maram and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading?
1: I finished up a book that I had heard about on an NPR station. I can't remember when. I can't remember which show, but it was called The Copenhagen Trilogy Childhood Youth Dependency by Tova Ditlivsen. I had never heard about this woman. She was in Denmark. She was a poet, actually a Famous poet in Denmark. And this Copenhagen trilogy is her memoir. It was recently translated and there were three sections that were all put together. So I heard about it and it just sounded kind of interesting and got a very good review. And so I thought, okay, I'll pick it up. But I had to wait forever for it. I don't know what the deal was, why it took so long, but I I waited for like months to get it from the library, from the library. It took months. I don't know why. I guess that maybe a bunch of other people had heard about it. I'm not sure. But anyway, I read it in like three days. It was a super quick read. She talks about her childhood. She was very poor and her parents did not have a great relationship So that's the first part of the book. And then the middle part of the book is sort of like her relationships. I think she is married maybe four times. And then at the end of the book, she gets hooked on Demerol. She has a relationship with a doctor and he basically... He starts giving her Demerol and she gets hooked and becomes an addict and has to go to rehab. And so it sort of reminded me in some ways of our messy memoir episode. The interesting thing about her memoir, though, is like sometimes when I read messy memoirs, I get very anxious because depending on how it's written it's hard for me to feel detached. You know, like sometimes the way the writer writes about it, you feel like you're like in the thick of it. And that sets off my anxiety. The interesting thing about Tova Ditlifson's book, her memoir, is that she keeps this sort of detachment, you know, as a narrator, which made it a little bit easier for me to read her book. So it was still interesting, but I didn't feel like I was sitting there and living it myself so it was super interesting to me just to read about somebody from another country you know a poet that I had never heard of before and she she got her start she was pretty young she was a teenager when she first started publishing so,
0: so when you heard about it you said you might have heard about it on NPR what was the focus of the article or the interview like, it was it was a book review
1: oh okay yeah it was a book review and so okay. the person who reviewed it said, that it was excellent, and I was like, "Okay, I'm sold." So I picked it up, and I, I gave it four stars. It was interesting. It was quick, and I didn't feel like I had been, you know, like Ugh, that. I, I felt like I could read it, and because of how she wrote it, I still maintained that distance, and I didn't feel like emotionally exhausted by the time I finished. Right. And that's not always the case with Nessie right. memoirs, so. Maram, have you been reading anything lately? Yeah, I've been picking up a lot of fantasy books
2: lately, reconnecting with the the child within me that used to spend hours reading fantasy because along the way, when I was adulting, quote unquote, I had completely dropped the habit of reading anything. So yeah, I've been reading a lot of fantasy lately. But the book that I would like to talk about today is it's a nonfiction book and it's called... Calling in the One, by Catherine Woodward Thomas. It's a book about, well, finding the one, except that the author really breaks it down so that the process of cleaning up your inner space and readying your inner space, your heart, your mind, your body, to receiving that partner, she makes that so much gentler and heart-centered and she breaks down a lot of the barriers. Like for myself, first of all, I've I've been relishing this book for uh, more than a month. I had been only reading one chapter per day so that I could sort of integrate and let the ideas percolate and so that I could journal about them and do whatever work was needed
0: uh, with every chapter. It's a book about readying yourself to find a partner. Yeah. I personally have
2: done a lot of inner work over the past few years. And I think what makes this book so successful is that it feels like you just entered this course, this sort of training and it's very undiluted and she puts you through a lot, but very gently and I found that she helped me release so much junk. <laughs> it just felt amazing for me when I finished the book.
1: So does it have, like, workbook space where you can journal or, or no? No, so every chapter is kind of like a lesson.
2: So there's, like, mm. week one, week two, week three. I think it was seven weeks. Every day there's a lesson, and then at the end of the lesson – She offers a few exercises that you could do. Sometimes they are journal inquiries. Sometimes they are lists. Sometimes they are experiences. Sometimes they're meditations. But I really think what was successful about this book is that she was really able to, to build her concepts. She'd start at square one with you and very gently build on that so that you don't feel overwhelmed, so that you don't feel like you're a failure at finding love, so that you don't feel like you're crippled or like you're there's something wrong that you're doing. So it was such a relief for me to read it. I'm glad I did.
0: So the junk that you're referring to, do you mean like preconceived notions right. or your own personal baggage by, yeah. about yeah. like past relationships yeah. or things like that? Your childhood traumas, your relationship mm. with
2: your parents any limiting beliefs you might have had or any agreements you would you would have made with yourself when you were very young and weren't aware i'm just trying to think of what agreement i had made just to give you a kind of an example of what i mean by that so you could have made an agreement that you will never allow yourself to be with somebody who is attractive Because you didn't think that you deserve to be with somebody who's attractive. Mm, uh, Something like that. Like you would have made that kind of decision within yourself and not realized it. mm, And mm -hmm. so it gets you to probe, like to go way, way back and find those, those knots within you that you're, you're not aware that you have or that you're struggling with or that are holding you back. Mm.
1: Or not allowing yourself to be as receptive to other people as you could be.
2: Yeah. So like I said, what she does is she takes you through it very gently, but she also includes this like spiritual layer that's not really attached to any religion per se, but there is a spiritual layer that she includes in the book that is very comforting for the heart.
0: That sounds like a an interesting book. We don't get very many. Would that be self-help?
2: I mean... I feel like when you put it in those words, it, it kind of sounds like how to, like finding a man one-on-one. It's, really, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that at all. I think what she helps you to do is to create the space within you so that you are able to receive yeah. and then you surrender. Yeah.
1: yeah. I do think like that label self-help, I don't love that label. I, yeah. I feel like there's a better way to categorize. Yeah books so well that sounds super interesting well amy what have you had going on over there
0: do you ever pick up a book purely on the title and the cover do you ever do that that's how i choose my wine (laughs) (laughs) does
1: that count
0: (laughs) Well, I pick my wine on that sometimes too, but for a book, the majority of the time I pick a book based on reviews or word of mouth, but occasionally I'll pick one because the title just appeals to me. And the book I'm going to talk about today is one of those books. So can you imagine your favorite comfort food being used as a weapon? So the (laughs) book I'm going to talk about today is about that a little bit. So the name of the book is called A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher. And it's a book that just looked fun to me. On the cover, there's a picture of a gingerbread man holding a dagger. And I am a hobby baker of bread and desserts, and I just couldn't resist reading this book. So the story is about a 14-year-old girl named Mona who works in her aunt and uncle's bakery in a world that feels a little bit like a fairy tale world. And there is a monarchy and there are people in this world who have magic and people who don't. And the people who have magic may have a lot of it such that they're a great wizard or they can have just like a little bit, just a touch of it, such that you would barely even notice that they had it. So Mona does have a bit of magic, but all of her magic only works on bread. So most of the time she never uses her magic unless it's to help at the bakery to maybe to produce more items or to fix a messed up batch of something. But she does have this sourdough starter that's a little bit like a monster and it only listens to her and his name is Bob and he belches (laughs) a lot. And he is just a really great character and no one else at the bakery dares to work with Bob. So one morning she comes in early to the bakery to get started on the baking and she finds a dead body on the floor. And then she herself is attacked and narrowly escapes. And when she talks to some of the street children, she hears that those with magic are being killed all around the city. And there's a rumor that one of the queen's most powerful wizards is the one who has sent an assassin to track down the magic folk. So this is the beginning of an adventure for Mona where she comes to find that what seems to her like a relatively small talent becomes very powerful. So this is a coming of age story and it's a a tale about someone who doesn't really want to be a hero but is thrust into that role. And using baking as this talent was super fun for me to read as a baker myself. And I really think it helps to get across the idea that we all have talents. And just because you aren't an NFL quarterback or you haven't found a cure for cancer, doesn't mean that your talent isn't important. So Mona's talent seems insignificant, but it's enough to challenge even a great powerful wizard when she also uses it with her intellect. And teaser here, there are also some pretty tough badass gingerbread men. (laughs) Oh my god. That's so cool. <laughs> so this was a very fun middle school read. And after I read it, I heard that it had been nominated for a Hugo award for sci-fi fantasy writing and their best young adult book category. So I was excited that I had read one of those because I don't read a whole lot of sci-fi fantasy books, but I definitely want to read more by this author and the author T. Kingfisher is a very popular fantasy author and she has won the Hugo, the Nebula, and several other fantasy awards. And it is a pen name for Ursula Vernon, who writes children's books and comics. And apparently she uses T. Kingfisher when she wants to write YA and adult books. But I thought this was a super fun read. And so I would recommend it, especially if you like, you know, books about magic, books that are kind of whimsical. It was a lot of fun.
1: I hate to bake, and I, this sounds like a book I'd like. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: no, it was, it was fun.
1: It was fun. That's awesome. All right. Well, we are going to take another quick break, and when we come back, Maram's going to answer her three about me. We are back with Maram Taiba and she's going to answer her three about me. We've read in other interviews that you start off every day meditating and there's all kinds of meditation practices. There's Zen meditation, transcendental visualization. So what type do you tend to practice and why?
2: I have just recently been practicing more breath work and just the kind of meditation where you lie down and you feel your body from the inside and you just stay there, I find it to be a very blissful practice, especially when you're able to do it for longer and longer, and you're able to feel all of your cells and your nerves and and it's it's quite pleasurable actually. And then breath work, because it's like I just discovered how to breathe. Mm. you know because, I'm the type of person who usually I'm an overthinker, I forget to breathe, I focus very hard on things, and, and I just forget to be part of that flow, that rhythm of you know, life coming in and out. So I, I don't know if I could label the meditation that I do. It really, for me, is a matter of discovery and whatever phase, I guess, that I'm in. And right now, I'm just, I'm just discovering what it's
0: like to truly be in your body. So how long do you, do you meditate for?
2: With this sitting in my body practice, I would say around 15 minutes-ish. Mm-hmm. I am trying to grow this number and be able to stay in it longer. But I just started doing this, so it is still a bit of a discovery for me.
0: Does it help you clear your mind for your day ahead? Or what kind of benefits do you find that you get from doing it?
2: Well, the practice itself when you're in it, in the moment, is deeply fulfilling while you're in it, regardless of how it would help you later on. And then when you're able to fully dip into your body, it's quite transcendental. And you just, you become no mind for period of time and then that helps me later on throughout the day to continually be connected to that hum you know that life force in in my
0: body okay so question number two there hasn't been a lot of karaoke going on in public in the last year but we hear that you like karaoke so I'm wondering (laughs) when karaoke is again a possibility for you what are the first two songs you would want to sing
2: it would probably be something by either ABBA or Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been doing a Sing Along Tuesday on my Instagram stories. So I'll just I'll pick a song every Tuesday and I'll sing it. And I sometimes invite people to sing along. Um, you're welcome to check that out also.
0: Very cool. I think ABBA probably is like one of the most perfect like the first song, I songs in
2: that series was an ABBA song, actually.
1: <laughs> I only sing to people if I feel like torturing them. Oh. <laughs> That's not something that anybody wants to hear. Although I do call my on my mom's birthday every year because she calls me and she's not a good singer. She calls me and leaves a message where she's singing happy birthday and it's atrocious. And so I have started doing that to her on her birthday. So <sighs> All right. So the last question, since you're a filmmaker, we have to ask whether you have either an all-time favorite film or if there's a favorite film that isn't that great, but you still love to watch it over and over again.
2: The Sound of Music is my all-time favorite. It's actually my family's all-time favorite. There's just something so magical and charming about this film that I don't Thing can be replicated and i hope to god nobody tries to do a remake of the sound of music <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> julie andrews is not in it then it ain't worth it um yeah the sound of music has been kind of a, a legend in my family we visited we did the sound of music tour in austria oh wow we visited some of the filming sites the gazebo where liesel and rolf dance. I think The Sound of Music is just storytelling when it's perfected. It has everything. And I could link the answer to this question back to the karaoke question. (laughs) I was going to
1: say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I have a film that it's not like the world's greatest film, but I can watch it and I have watched it over and over and over again. It's The Mummy with Mm. um, Brendan Fraser and... Well, and rachel weiss life. yeah and i can watch that movie i mean just constantly it's good
0: really? yeah. why yeah. why why that one i have no idea i can understand the sound of music that's a that's a classic right but the money i mean I i'm not know. saying it's not a good movie i just am wondering about watching it over and over i don't know i have no idea i feel like that about the first three star wars movies I loved the Star Wars movies growing up and really it is the, well, besides Bambi, the Bambi is the first movie I remember seeing. I was maybe four and my mom took me to see it, but the first Star Wars movie is the first movie that I ever remember seeing in a movie theater. And I went with my mom and my cousin. And so maybe that's why, and for somebody who doesn't read a lot of sci-fi, like it's maybe a little strange that I would love Star Wars so much, but I do love the first three Star Wars movies.
1: Well, Maram, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been so fun getting to know you and hearing all about what you're doing. And like I said, I can't wait to pick up the road to elephants. So thank you again.
2: Thank you for inviting me. And I absolutely loved your questions.
0: Thanks for joining us today. You can find Maram on Instagram at maram.taiba.author, on Twitter at maram.taiba.author, And at her website at maram-taiba.com. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our website? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. And if you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Do you know another great way to get the word out? Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. The more ratings we have, the more likely that our show will pop up for listeners looking for bookish podcasts. And writing a review is great too. If you leave a review, we'll read it on the air. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.